Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 22. We all had to enter through the lot, which, though completely full with both ground and air cars, also had a wide sidewalk leading to a broad, fenced-in field in front of a factory. The crowd flocked in. A gate in the fence had been flung wide, and people with weapons and black-knit hats stood imposingly by. Some of these wore actual military uniforms, others what I took to be police cold gear. Obviously, their loyalties were with the Orthos, the Blacks, and they were watching the crowd now for obnoxious drunks and enemies of the revolution alike. At least 400 people must have been in the field, with that many more trying to get in. This was all happening at another of those big manufacturing facilities of mysterious function, and the voice, which never paused, came from a PA system outside it. Part of the problem here was the razor fence that surrounded everything because people couldn't lean up against it without risking injury, though some had thrown cloth bags and blankets onto the thing to act as protective barriers. More people were on the roof of this place, as well as the roofs of nearby buildings. There was an exterior stairwell facing the crowd. These stairs sported large landings, which might have been intended to be exterior break areas for the workers, or for management, more like. They were decorative little spaces, with benches and awnings on each story. Right now, though, they were simply packed with well-armed insurgent types, sporting weapons and bearing black hats of various kinds. I thought for a moment that it might be prudent to look around and find a hat for myself, but most of the people in the crowd weren't wearing one, despite their enthusiastic cheers to the various emphatic exhortations of the mic speaker. I could now see that this guy stood in the middle of a landing up there. He had a long brown beard and wore army-style cold gear like many of the others, but unlike them, he had lots of stripes on his sleeves. He bore a black beret and hardly seemed to take a breath as he ranted on in low speak. He had the gesticulating energy of an emerging leader of the revolution. I noticed, too, more soldier types positioned on the stairs, preventing the crowd from surging either up from the lot or down from the roof. Actually, the guy did attempt some variety in his public speaking style. He was a star in the new world, or wanted to be. Sometimes he was shouting, but then would turn clipped and succinct. Then he followed on with guttural words that had scattered people ringing out with cries of Deterre! Deterre! I called that word up from the translator in my wrist comp, and it appeared in my eye view as of or pertaining to earth or soil but a footnote stated it was also a colloquialism which, in certain contexts, meant righteous vengeance. 
Though it gave no reference for this second meaning, both of them seemed to be closely related. Then there were even more possible meanings scrolling by. The linguistic sciences were never my bag, so I was utterly confused, until it became all too clear. There was some shuffling and movement by the goons on the stairs, as several people, all tape-cuffed and bearing hoods on their heads, were hustled through an office door onto a balcony above the speaker. They were pushed and paraded down the stairs in front of the suddenly animated crowd. People above and below hurled laughter, catcalls, and whistles at the bound figures. There were six of them, four men and two women of various ages. They were not wearing cold gear or even shoes, and showed signs of rough handling. Along with the torn and blood-spotted clothing, several had limps and injured arms that they tried to cradle and protect from all the jostling. A guy on the speaker's platform was clipping ropes or cables to the railing there. The speaker himself was still talking over the noise of the crowd, still imploring them to his point of view, utterly oblivious to the prisoners. No one was listening now that the real action had started, and the man tying the lines finally touched his shoulder and pointed to the prisoners as they were herded onto the landing. He stopped in mid-sentence and watched them too. The idea of witnessing executions was hardly compelling, so I turned to make my way back through the crowd. A bunch more of the military and police types had come up quietly and were fanned out near the gate possibly to maintain order, but just as possibly to watch the crowd for their own, very particular definition of unfriendlies. I hadn't actually gone inside the field very far, so I guess one of them caught my movement as I elbowed and pushed through people. This woman watched me with suspicious eyes, narrowing all the more because I also watched her. She had seen some fighting recently because her police uniform was soiled and ripped in a few places. She also had a black eye and, when speaking into a throat mic, revealed two missing teeth in the front. I could just about see the gears turning in her head. She was deciding if I was friend or foe, and she looked ready, if not eager, to hunt out foes. Turning back to face the balcony, I began cheering with the rest. I raised my fist and shouted inarticulately whenever the crowd did. I jumped up and waved both arms like a frenzied, blood-mad worker. The mob, whipped up by now, was oblivious to itself, and I shouted and waved and slipped through them like a chubby eel. Ducking down to the ground for just half a moment, risking a kick in the head, I removed my cold gear hood and stood again, a different man. I raised my offhand and pumped it like the others. Deterre, I shouted. Deterre, deterre. On the balcony, the prisoners were having their own hoods pulled off one by one, as the speaker guy provided what I assumed was a litany of their crimes. They had all been beaten about the head and neck. Some were crying while others just looked on, stunned. Two big soldiers suddenly stepped over from the rear of the balcony and, with a nod from the speaker, threw a noose from one of the lines over the head of the woman on one end. She tried to struggle, but they simply picked her up bodily and tossed her off the railing. She fell with a quick scream, 
and then stopped about a meter and a half down. I couldn't hear the snap, but she just swung, limply, wildly, back and forth. Turning away again, my gorge rising, I looked first for the police and next for a way to skirt the mob along the fence line. There might have been another exit somewhere. A second big shout rang out, and from the corner of my eye, I saw another figure go over the balcony. Then a third was snatched up, but he kicked and fought as best he could, knocking back one of the brutes who held him. The crowd howled with laughter and outrage over the audacity of this man to fight for his life. Another soldier got pushed down as well and almost pitched head first off the balcony. There were just too many people up there for this thing to go smoothly. For a few seconds, it was almost comical. Then the speaker guy stepped forward with a pistol and shot the prisoner in the back of the head. A spray of blood and brain matter flew out over the crowd, which shouted and laughed as if the bearded man was a pop star playing his newest hit. The two largely inept bruisers lifted the corpse over the rail, and it fell and swung like the others, back and forth, back and forth, dribbling blood onto a tall snowbank directly below. I'd made it to the fence by now, but could see no other gates in it. Some people outside in the parking lot were climbing the fencing to get a better vantage point, but they all had on work gloves, which are generally slice-resistant, as opposed to simple cold gear gloves like mine, which are generally not. I spied one fellow out there, not far down the line, with a small wire cutter, trying to make a hole so he could get in. I pushed over to hold the fence fabric taut while he worked. He gave me a thumbs up and chattered something in low speak that I couldn't hear in the noise and wouldn't have understood anyway, but I smiled back. The wire wanted to shred my gloves, of course, so I mostly just touched it lightly and pretended to be useful. Finally, he grabbed one side of the fence and pulled, opening a hole big enough to crouch through. This he did with the same grin, others packed up behind to follow. Once he was inside, though, I bowled my way out on hands and knees. The crowd on this side was just as heavy, but I stood and pushed past people and parked cars until I was back out on the street. Over the heads of those assembled, the last of the prisoners was thrown off the balcony. The cable on this guy's neck was longer than the others, either by mistake or design, and he fell at least three or four meters before coming to the end of it. His momentum was so great by then that he simply kept falling to the snowbank below. The head followed just a spare second later. The mob surged. Noise, distraction, shouting. It was a joke, and they cheered and clapped. I stumbled on, not looking back. These executions had probably been recorded and would be streamed over the world net just as soon as it was back up. The drama, comedy, and cheerful enthusiasm of the crowd would be played out planet-wide for revolutionaries and loyalists alike. It would be watched publicly, within secret enclaves and in people's homes. The horror or entertainment value would be unknown and unknowable, a thing perfectly subjective. Police and guard types out on the street seemed mostly intent on crowd control, watching for rowdy drunks and others intent on spoiling the party. 
Behind me, as I hobbled away, the speaker guy began his harangue again. Within a minute, I'd rounded a corner and was moving off, his stabbing, echoing words growing thinner with every step. Dozens of latecomers were still headed to the place, and I passed them all without looking. I forced my mind onto my own little drama, but it wasn't easy, and I shuddered for long seconds with the struggle. Stopping to breathe cool air, I leaned on a wall, eyes closed. No, there was nothing to see, nothing to think about, just the ship, just its people. Carmi and Dell were down here yet, and I couldn't break them out by myself. I knew someone who might be able to help, but he had a strange plan of his own. Alan Small, the news anchor who certainly wasn't. Urbane, witty, smart, and probably dangerous. Couldn't forget that. His pilot, Hap Larendell, would be out with the yacht right this moment, prepping it and doing extensive pre-flight tests. That was a technical process which required time, especially when working alone. He would have to do complete system checks, as well as a total life support purge, cleaning, and recharge. He'd need confirmation that each and every artificial gravity radiator plate was in 100% working order, along with all inertial dampening subsystems. It required Larendell to be a skilled engineer in addition to an interstellar pilot. Such a man could earn a very respectable pay rate in the legitimate civilian sector. I couldn't even imagine his compensation for this kind of operation. And I knew he had to be working alone because the others were, or rather had been, in finery. This in turn meant they were still working too, that they'd yet to achieve their goal. If I were to catch up to them, perhaps I could... What? Convince them somehow to help people they'd already decided they didn't need? The only currency I could offer was information, but I didn't have any. Not yet. And even if I found some, they could just force it from me without ever helping in return. No. I had to control access to something they saw as vital, something which meant the difference between success and failure, or even life and death. Transportation off-world. True, Alan Small had his own ride lined up, but what if he suddenly didn't? It had now been 10 hours since I'd left the Vernay's household. With the nets down, there was no way to call and find out what had happened, or if they were even safe. Likely, they were still on the run, the kids toward a protected base somewhere, the commissioner maybe on to a different fortified location where he would continue the pretense of patriotism. Even now, near the end, the man was a slave to appearance. Another piece of irony, but such things came hot and fast on Barlow, and I'd lost count. Man, I was hungry. I hadn't even thought of it before, and suddenly couldn't think of anything else. Eating my box lunch in the gutter seemed unpleasant, so I looked for a quiet location to sit and relax. Just for a bit, just until I had a plan in mind. The need for some peace and quiet reminded me suddenly of G's little Groyich apartment. 
The reactions of the kids had made it seem like a love nest of some sort, or maybe a brothel where he had a reserved room. That implied some degree of comfort. It also implied sleaziness, but that would be easier to take than public hangings. The hasty waypoint I'd marked on my map when we fled town the night before was just under a kilometer away from my current location. I calculated a route through smaller side roads and alleys in order to minimize contact with the locals. Then I started off. Almost immediately, I got turned around when I came upon a retaining wall that wasn't shown on the map. It took nearly ten minutes before I found some cement stairs in the wall that allowed me to press on. I walked over a covered pass-through that spanned an open storm drain, trickling polluted runoff. This continued on through an area fenced on both sides, though the fences had been largely torn down. The walkway ran past the rear faces of two large buildings, one on either side, and large bay doors on both were open to the day. People walked around here in a casual, familiar manner. Both buildings looked to be part of a single, large manufacturing complex, and there was even a gate across the pass-through that someone, at one time, must have thought was a good idea. It, like the fence, was laying flat on the pavement, covered in wet cardboard and old plastic wrapping. I stepped over it carefully, as it was slippery, while studying the dirty, shred-garbed folks of this place. There were families, kids, elderly folks, moms and dads. There were also more of those pompous, raggedy militia types wandering around. Graffiti and trash were, by far, the dominant motif. In a bit, I was into this crowd, but everyone seemed to know everyone here, everyone but me. I hoped I looked scruffy enough to pass muster, or, at the least, that nobody who actually cared about such things laid eyes on me. I was able to skirt right by a group of the gun-toting youths by crouch-walking behind some old ladies until I was clear. It was like being invisible, except that it took work and I was scared to death. There was a lot of drinking going on here, lots of grano and drug use. It was open and plain. Children indulged freely, as did their parents, when they seemed to have any. For that matter, the militia kids, and they did all seem to be teens, were doing the same. This was a party, the first glorious day after the end of the Civil War, or its end in finery anyway, sort of. They were feeling a flush of power, as the long-abused surf class was finally gaining ascendancy. Never mind that they were still living in the exact same squalor as the day before. Never mind public violence. None of that mattered in the excitement of action and self-indulgence, and the most I could hope for was to walk away quietly. That almost happened, too. I was within sight of another avenue that the map in my eye view detailed when my risk comp must have been noticed. Though pretty wide... Covering fully half the forearm, my rig was dark in color and had no lights or blinky things other than the hollow feature, which was not on at that moment. It was pretty unobtrusive, therefore, but I was stupid and did some head and hand gestures as I walked. Someone saw and pointed me out. 
Three armed boys stepped in front of me and barked a question I couldn't understand. I kept waving and gesturing without pause, but now in an even more exaggerated manner. In my eye view, the map interface couldn't follow what I was doing anymore and sat waiting for recognizable input. From the kids' perspective, I was having some sort of fit. They yelled at me belligerently. No! I shouted back with a sort of broken mumble, since the local accent was beyond me. No! 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 They didn't know what to make of me, but odds on they'd witnessed plenty of mental illness and addiction-related disorders in their short lives. They spoke with each other for a bit and even laughed. This was a risk, because they could easily see me as some sort of dangerous lunatic that needed dealing with, or perhaps just see through the performance. Either way would end the same. One of them reached for my bag, so I hugged it close and shouted even louder. No! I held it to my chest and kept shouting, spinning around now like a manic puppy. I lost my footing and went down into an oily puddle. This made them laugh some more, and one of them kicked me in the side. Not hard, though, more like a statement of contempt. The boy who seemed to be in charge, or at least who held authority over the other two, pointed his stubby automatic weapon at me. It was a cheap, low-tech thing of printed ballistic-grade plastic. It had a ludicrously long clip of ammo sticking out the bottom, held in place with engineer's tape. He'd also put animated stickers all over it. I was only a meter away, so its relative value as a weapon of war was completely immaterial if it could work at all. He hardly looked more than 15 years old, with dark, tangled hair and the soft, thin bristle of a boy's first whiskers on his sneering upper lip. He was irritated and excitable and seemed quite willing to shoot. Then, the one who had kicked me before did so again this time much harder. I felt a pain in my side so intensely I couldn't see for a moment, and I cried out. This was license for the others to join in, and they yelled and laughed and kicked me as well. I covered my head and curled up around my spacer's bag, right there in the puddle, feeling only their boots and jeers. Laughter, curse, kick, kick, laughter, kick, curse, kick, kick. This must have seemed like poor sport after a time, because they eventually lost interest. Breathing hard, they jabbered away about other things, or seemed to. At any rate, the kicking stopped, and they just wandered off, arguing boisterously, the crazy man in the puddle already forgotten. My lip was split, my nose bleeding. My ribs felt, well, like I'd been kicked over and over. I lay there for a long time, uncurling from that fetal position slowly, testing each limb, each movement. Feet kept tramping by and around me, back and forth, like a swirl of indifference, like I was just more wet trash in the alley. The whole time, no one stopped to help or even watch. I finally sat up with a growling moan. It hurt badly on my right side to inhale. I was soaked from the puddle and probably smelled like the beggar I now appeared to be. 
On the uptick, a broken, bloody, hobbling man, making strange gestures and noises, would certainly draw less attention than a slightly cleaner, fairly healthy one had. And I was alive, which was hard to fault at this point. For nearly half an hour, I just sat there. Eventually, I climbed to my feet and stumbled off. If anything, the pass-through seemed even darker and more intimidating now. People milled about, talking, singing, shouting. Some just stood around in dodgy little groups. A cacophony of music played from hundreds of small, cheap media devices. More drinking, more guns and swaggering. But I was a limping mound of filth now, and nobody seemed to notice anymore. At the end of the walkway was a wide thoroughfare, just as shown on the map. The key stick G had so casually offered was still in my pocket, and the waypoint was around an upcoming corner. More people were on the street here, but they were moving hither and thither and seemed less idle and menacing than the others had. Finally turning the corner, I spied my gifted little hideaway across the street. Several bodies were on the sidewalk in front of the place, all disheveled and red-stained, laid out like trophies. Men, women, and some kids were just coming out the front door, looking absurd in brightly colored robes, lingerie, and other items which they wore over their rags and makeshift cold gear. They laughed, drank, and smoked perfumey, aromatic blunts I could smell on the breeze. They carried off furniture, consumer devices, and armloads of even more clothing. A young man, naked and shouting, was dragged out by several people and thrown bodily into the street. He tumbled, then came up again all torn and bloody, running away in his bare feet, heedless of icy puddles, trash, and broken glass. Howls of laughter followed him as he sprinted, terrified, right past me. I turned away from the scene and just looked around at the dank streets. That was it. No place to stay. No Alan Small. No crewmates. I hadn't any backup plans. The map put the revolutionary headquarters at just under two kilometers away. That wouldn't have been a problem under normal circumstances, but I was hurting now and still hungry, though afraid suddenly to reveal the fact that I carried any food. I had no other direction, nothing else to do. I gestured for a route and shuffled on across the road. I stopped at least four times to rest and almost fell asleep against a stone-mold road barrier at one point right out in the open. There were people and cars about. I remember the sound of more shooting from somewhere, too. I found a quiet spot behind a metal shed and dabbed at my cuts with a stick of antibiotic stuff from the med kit. There were a few stims in there, too, which finally gave me my second wind. I pressed on. The right neighborhood drew near not long after, and I moved slowly toward a large building at the end of the block, highlighted orange in my eye view. A tall, gated structure, it sat in the shadow of a giant processing facility nearby. This gave it a dark, cheerless character, and made me check the time more than once 
thinking I'd somehow lost the afternoon in my feverish wanderings. Some exterior lights were on even now in the middle of the day, implying that the place was always in twilight. Down the face of it ran a long white banner, in the center of which was the ever-present box star. Several guard types stood around or patrolled slowly, both outside and inside the gate. These units were a blend of actual uniformed soldiers and those mix-and-match rebels. All of them, as far as I could see, wore blue armbands, not a black cap in the bunch. The commissioner had mentioned a General Beckus leading the secular side. That droning butcher back in the parking lot, whose name I never even caught, must have been the ortho-boss man. Two opposing leaders of the post-revolutionary government. Never mind the ham-handed, incompetent justice of the blacks, or that the leader of the blues had been a prominent member of the old regime. All of that was immaterial. They had big banners and killed unlikable managers, and they talked and talked about changing the world. I studied the building in front of me, both on the map and right there on the street, to get a sense of its size and the surrounding area. Then I took some grainy vid with my retinals to study later. I just wanted to sit somewhere. My ribs were really killing me now. Inhaling was like breathing a knife. As I limped back down the block, a truck rolled by. It was a big troop carrier, filled with soldiers who looked at me indifferently from their open-air seats in back. It continued on to the secular HQ, and after a brief stop at the gate, passed inside. I walked until I finally came to another side street. Unlike the place of my recent beating, this one was deserted. Razor fencing on both sides was untouched, and high piles of old crates and packaging nearly blocked the way. With aching feet from all the walking, and aching everything else from the laughing, brutal attention of Finery's goonish children, I moved down this small road with an unsteady lurch and more than a few honest groans. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care. Thank you.